Are there things that Canadians believe about residential schools that just aren't true? We would like to have an honest conversation about residential schools, Canadian history, and the best path forward for First Nations people today. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. So we all know last year, Canadians were shocked and saddened by the news of the discovery of unmarked graves found near residential schools. Many Canadians accepted this news with grief, remorse, sadness, and sympathy over our history and our past treatment of First Nations people. Some Canadians, however, went even further, and they declared that because of these apparent discoveries, Canada was guilty of some of the worst crimes imaginable. They stated that Canada was irredeemably racist, that we're still racist today, that were equivalent to the Nazis, and that our country was built on colonialism, genocide, and therefore the whole country was just completely beyond the pale, irredeemably racist. Um, but before we accept these facts, before we accept, accept the very worst accusations leveled against our country, it's important to learn the facts, to consider the context uh, that these policies were implemented in, and to examine our history with a fair and even-handed approach. As journalists, we here at True North, we care primarily about the truth, the truth regardless of how politically incorrect or socially unfashionable it may be. And because of that, we think it's important to look at our history, yes, with a critical eye, but also with an eye for the truth. So when it comes to the residential school system, we don't believe that it stands up to today's standards, it wouldn't be accepted today, and that it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. It was a failed policy. It was a centrally planned, government-knows-best approach that broke up communities and harmed families, all for the sake of lofty liberal goals. By and large, the program didn't work. It failed. Today, many First Nations still live in poverty. Many of them still have lower living standards and a shorter life expectancy than other Canadians. They have worse health outcomes as well. So in order to address some of these problems today, it's important that we do have that open and honest conversation about our past. I want to examine some of the myths perpetuated about residential schools, discuss some of the ideas and some of the solutions that we can have going forward about how we can move forward together as a country and how we can work to address some of these problems with the discrepancies in living standards uh, for First Nations Canadians. So to do this today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Tom Flanagan. Tom is Professor Emeritus at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. In 2002, he served as campaign manager on Stephen Harper's Canadian Alliance leadership campaign and later as campaign manager on Harper's Conservative Party leadership campaign. Tom is an award-winning author. His expertise covers a broad range of issues, including Aboriginal rights, as well as Canadian politics and Canadian history. Now, Tom recently co-wrote a great op-ed here at True North with retired Judge Brian Giesbeck about some of the misleading claims around the residential school narrative. So, Tom, welcome to the Candace Malcolm Show. Welcome to True North, and thank you so much for joining us. Yo, well, hi, Candace. Great to be here. Great. Well, first, before we get into some of the myths about the residential schools, I want to ask you uh, your opinion and your reaction to that big sort of bombshell news story that we had last year about the discovery, apparent discovery of unmarked graves at residential schools. Well, Candace, this is probably the worst case of fake news uh, that I have ever seen in Canada. Um, to this point now, more than six months after the original announcement, not a single uh, uh, student has been identified. No grave has been identified as belonging to a student. No body has been exhumed. Uh, there is actually no evidence at all that these are the uh, uh, the graves of students who died at residential school. You have to look at each case, you know, to understand the details, but it started in Kamloops. Uh, the uh, 
there was an assistant professor from Simon Fraser with her ground detecting her ground penetrating radar who claimed that there might be 200 and uh, 200 plus grave sites uh, in an apple orchard. Uh, but in fact, there was always a community um, Catholic uh, graveyard in, in Kamloops. It's about a mile away. Uh, there, there's no record of a, a graveyard near the residential school and uh, nothing has been produced from this apple orchard uh, which uh, which gives any positive evidence the other cases that were quickly reported you know in succession there was a kind of a series of reports but uh, they all turned out to also have been community graveyards uh, next to a parish church and while it's possible that uh, some students from residential schools were buried there they weren't primarily for that purpose so um, there is actually nothing to this story about mass graves or unmarked graves until we get some positive evidence uh, the, the story should be completely discounted so it's amazing that it was picked up uh, by opinion leaders and political leaders in the way that it was without any real evidence of course there's people are using manipulating it and you're using it for particular political purposes but i just have to repeat until we see some positive evidence this is the worst case of fake news in Canadian history. Well, I, you know, I, I, I watched the case unfold. I followed it very closely. I was one of the reporters that was trying to dig into it. And to me, it was wild because the initial news re release that was released by that Kamloops band basically didn't have any evidence. Like you said, it, it was very loose on facts. Most of it was just quotes, like community quotes. This is how we're reacting. And it was so interesting, Tom, to see some of the quotes uh, you know, subjective feelings about what had happened, um, sort of like rumors and oral history or whatever, being written in as fact in news stories. So so there was one sort of uh, famous example where they said, you know, children as young as three are said to have been missing. And then all of a sudden you see the, the report over in the CBC or in, you know, international publications like the BBC saying, you know, remains of children as young as three were discovered. It's like, well, that's not even what the news release said. The news release was talking about the sort of, you know, the, the memory of people in the area. And, and, and of course, to your point, you know, one of the stories, one of the other reserves that came forward with uh, similar claims, it, you know, it turned out that the graveyard where the graves were discovered, this was in Cranbrook, they, uh, the lower Kootenai uh, reserve, the, 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 you know, someone else came out and said, you know, this is a known graveyard. It's not, they're not unmarked graves. They're just graves that have fallen into disrepair. I did a bit of research about that graveyard and it predated the residential school by a few decades. And it was actually affiliated with the local hospital. So it had nothing to do with the residential school. It had everything to do with, this is where bodies were buried that perished at this local hospital. So I, I, uh, I, I completely echo uh, some, some of your sentiments there. I want to ask you about some of the reaction because, you know, we, we, we saw a lot of sort of grief and, you know, we saw churches being burnt and politicians turn a blind eye. Uh, one of the things I was disappointed about uh, with was the, uh, the response from the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party at that point basically uh, urged the government to fulfill the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation report. Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation report was a radically uh, left-wing initiative and document that completely butchered the facts and ignored the truth. And here we had conservatives calling for basically more, doubling down on these failed policies of endless spending, more money to unaccountable leaders, uh, doubling down on uh, 
dependency of this community. Uh, why is it that conservatives don't really have a alternative uh, position and, and don't have an, another approach when it comes to you know addressing residential schools, addressing uh, so, some of the pa past dis dispar discrepancies between treatment and helping move this community out of poverty today? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a tendency for a party in opposition to seize anything to attack the government. Uh, I mean, it's understandable. They are the opposition. It's their job to oppose. But um, uh, sometimes parties in opposition will uh, pick up opinions that don't really fit with their own philosophy, but it seems convenient in the short run to use them to try and beat up the government. I think that's what's happened here uh, is the conservatives in opposition kind of blindly grabbing something uh, without stopping to think about how it would fit into a larger conservative program. <laughs> That's too bad. Well, uh, let's let's move on to talk about your op-ed that you wrote. You wrote an excellent op-ed for True North, uh, sort of uh, discussing some of the myths associated with residential schools. One of the one of the major myths uh, that we that we saw repeated, uh, but by by both sides. I have many libertarian friends, and they say that this was their major issue with residential schools was that um, children were forcibly removed from their parents. Um, your your op-ed uh, paints a different picture and, and says that that this isn't true. That the program was never compulsory. So why don't you uh, sort of I explain what you wrote in your op-ed and uh, try to address this myth? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, a few facts would be useful. Uh, we don't maintain that the program was never compulsory, but we point out that it was not nearly as compulsive as uh, as is commonly portrayed today. You know, it's become a, mer uh, a, a narrative meme to say that 150,000 people, uh, children were ripped from the arms of their, of their parents. Well, uh, First of all, at all times, there were more uh, Indian students in day schools than in residential schools. The main option for educating the children of status Indians uh, in this period of time was the day school, which was uh, set up on reserves. Many of them were run by churches, not all, but many were. But the uh, children lived with their parents or whoever uh, at home. Um, there's also a large number of uh, Indian children who didn't go to school at all. As late as, uh, uh, as, late as the mid-40s, about 40% of Indian children were not enrolled in any school. The residential school was mainly used, I mean, they, they were scattered around the country, uh, but they were most heavily used in remote areas of the West and North. So the Prairie Provinces, British Columbia, Northwest Territories, Northern Ontario, uh, there was only one residential school in the Maritimes and there was a handful in Quebec. Um, so uh, residential schools were never the main option. That's, a, that's an important point to grasp. They were an important option, but they were not the main one. Secondly, um, there was no real obligation to attend any kind of school for Indian children until 1920. Uh, it, attendance was put into the Indian Act earlier, but it, there wasn't any enforcement mechanism and it wasn't in practice, it was not enforced. And it wasn't enforced that vigorously subsequently, as I said, by in the mid forties, there were still a large number of Indian children who were not attending Indian residential schools. Um, there was uh, some compulsion in later decades, uh, but a lot of it was uh, a substitute for a child welfare system, 
life was hard for the First Nations in these years. Many were still supporting themselves by hunting and trapping and fishing, particularly in the north. Uh, mortality rates were high. There were a lot of orphans. And there were a lot of Indian children whose mother had died and whose father had to go out on the trap line. And you know what was he going to do with the children? So the residential schools became, uh, in their later years, let's say from the uh, 30s and 40s on, probably from the beginning to some degree, but more so as time went on, they became a way of caring for Indian children that uh, didn't have um, parents to, who, who could look after them. So there may have been an element of compulsion there in the Indian agent um, uh, finding these children, bringing them to the school. Uh, but, you know, there's a huge pile of applications for residential school by parents in the Department of Indian Affairs saying, please let our children in. Uh, in many cases, the schools were uh, overbooked. They couldn't let in everybody who wanted to come. Uh, so I'm not saying there was never any compulsion. There was in some cases, but uh, it was not the the dominant feature of of the Native history that it is now made out to be. Uh, it is it is one fact among many, but it it shouldn't be allowed to dominate our thinking. Well, I'll just add, say in passing, uh, uh, all children are compelled to go to school. Today, we provinces have opened up the option of homeschooling. Uh, where you have to satisfy the authorities that you're doing the equivalent of a of, of a school education but uh, uh compulsion has been a universal fact of life for parents in canada for their children for uh, you know for well over 100 years so the fact that indian children were uh required to attend school is is hardly surprising well, it's, it's so interesting. I've heard from readers who talk about their own experience, uh, people who say that, you know, they made it, they, they grew up in a small town in Saskatchewan where there was a residential school and a, and a Catholic school, a non-Indigenous Catholic school. And the residential school was way nicer. It had better resources. It had, you know, better better teachers and stuff. And, and you sort of hear anecdotally that life wasn't really that bad. I know in your op-ed you wrote about how uh, one individual who became successful after attending one of these residential schools said that his time there was nine of the best years of my life. So, so Tom, help me understand why, why is it that we have such a negative view of these residential schools that we see them as genocidal and forced assimilation and that, and that people have this really like that, you know, I've, I've heard, I've heard Canadians equate them to like Nazi death, death camps, like, like with a straight face, truly believing that. How did we come to this point as a country where this is the narrative that we have about a program that was, again, based on uh, lofty liberal goals like universal education, lifting people out of poverty, welcoming First Nations people into the broader Canadian community and, and kind of uniting everybody. And yet today it's, it's really seen in such a negative light. Yeah. Well, you know, the historical record is mixed as it is for all human institutions. Uh, you know, if I could just draw a comparison for a second, if you look at the literature surrounding boarding schools in England, which were used for uh, the children of, of elite parents, um, many students love their schools. Others uh, report, uh, you know, horrifying reports of physical and sexual abuse in these schools. Um, so for residential schools in, in Canada, you'll find uh, also a mixed uh, set of reports, and there are some like Thompson Highway, the uh, the writer that you mentioned, who was very happy there. There are others 
uh, who, who have some very dark things to say about residential schools. And I think any honest approach would, uh, would try and draw the balance. But what, what has happened is that um, people with uh, strong ideological convictions, uh, what today is often called wokeism, have taken the bad reports and woven them into their narrative while completely discounting the, uh, uh, the, the numerous good reports um, so that you get a, a kind of a mythology about residential schools that they were hell holes and like concentration camps and the children being murdered and uh, you know there's no end of, uh, of stories like this whereas the reality is much more mixed. They were a pragmatic uh, response to the objective difficulties of trying to educate uh, a widely uh, distributed population um, where the density was enough, day schools were set up, but in some parts of Canada, I mean, Canada's a big country and transportation is difficult, particularly a hundred years ago before modern cars and planes and so on. Um, and if children were gonna be in school, in some cases, it had to be a residential school. So it was a pragmatic solution. It had its drawbacks uh, and we've moved on and we have uh, different solutions now. I'm not even gonna say they're better solutions so we have, they're better adapted to the realities of our age. But so there's this, this problem of presentism, uh, of, of looking at the past uh, as if it were the present. You have to take the past on its own terms. I haven't yet heard anybody say what would have been a practical alternative to residential schools. Would you say no school at all? Uh, if we hadn't set up any schools, Canada condemned, would be condemned today for leaving this population in, in, in ignorance. Um, day schools were tried and, and were useful in the majority of cases, but in some cases the practicalities just weren't there. Uh, public schools, well, Many Indians did attend public school, but there were a lot of reports about encountering um, uh, hostility from the white students and being beaten up by white students. Uh, you know, this was a, a fact of life at the time. Wouldn't happen today in the same way, but it, it did happen then. So uh, what was the better alternative to residential schools given the conditions of the time? Now, we maybe Canada should have shut them down sooner. It was realized by about 1950 that they would have to go and Canada started phasing them out. And they were mostly gone by the 60s and completely gone by 1996. Uh, you know, maybe again, maybe it should have happened faster. A lot of things should have happened when we look at the past and from the vantage point of the present. That, that, no, that's certainly certainly true. Well, I, I want to sort of move on to the issue today because it seems like there's still a lot of problems in this community and we as a country haven't really come up with a lot of good solutions as to how to help address some of these. I know Harper, um, you know, he, he, he did make some strides in trying to make reserves and bans more accountable by making uh, the spending more transparent so that people who live on the reserves could see where the money was going. Of course, Trudeau, uh, one of his first uh, moves in office was to scrap the Accountability Act and, and allow First Nations to continue to spend without any record of what they're spending the money on. But I'm, I'm wondering if you can help me sort of 
try to understand or, or come up with some ideas and solutions as to what can be done today. Because the reality, Tom, is that there's still a lot of poverty in First Nations community. There are negative, uh, much worse health outcomes. We, we were doing some research on this topic and the life expectancy for uh, First Nations men is nine years less than non-First Nations men, and for women it's 10 years less. So we, we, we have some real, real issues and, and dis disparities here. And I'm wondering if you have some ideas and solutions as to how we can we can move past this. Yeah. Okay, before I get into that, let me just make one clarification on something you said on uh, the Financial Accountability Act. Um, the Liberals didn't repeal the act. They announced that they would stop enforcing it. Um, so there's no longer financial penalties for First Nations who don't comply. But a large majority of First Nations are complying. Something like 80% are still filing their annual financial reports. And that's good news. It would be great if it would be 100%. But uh, the fact that it's roughly 80%, maybe more, maybe more the last time I looked, um, is, is, is that's good news. Okay, now what can be done? Well, first of all, we have to get rid of the idea that there is some single government solution uh, to this so-called problem. Uh, we, we have a set of facts um, and, uh, you know, the facts are that people who are ethnically different, um, less human capital for a modern society and living in remote places uh, have a much lower standard of living. I mean, that, that's a fact that has no single immediate solution. What is happening is that uh, many First Nations are making progress for themselves by uh, playing a role in the modern market economy. And a lot of my research over the last 10 years has been directed towards chronicling that and trying to figure out how they are making progress. Um, and there are now a number of First Nations that whose, where the living standard is quite comparable to uh, the Canadian norm, and they've done it on their own. <clears throat> by, um, well, there's no, again, there's no single way that they have done it, but the broad picture is through, uh, uh, through playing a role in Canada's market economy. It could be through um, um, casinos in a few cases, uh, recreational industries, hotels, restaurants, um, uh, fishing lodges, uh, participation in the resource economy is a big one. Uh, what can what can government do to help this along? Well, the single biggest thing that government could do is to stop impeding the development of resource industries. The the uh, large number of the poorest First Nations live in uh, parts of uh, uh, the the northern parts of the provinces where not much is happening except resource development. Uh, these aren't going to be manufacturing centers or high-tech centers or whatever. Uh, these are places where you find oil and gas and hard rock minerals and, and forestry, in some case fish. Um, and that's how these people are going to be able to progress and make a good living for themselves. And right now, uh, the government is, is seems to be doing all it can to impede uh, development up there. So blocking, uh, of, for example, of the Northern Gateway Pipeline, there were dozens of First Nations that would have benefited from the Northern Gateway Pipeline. Uh, what about the um, Ring of Fire mining development in Ontario? Again, many First Nations would benefit uh, from that. Will it ever go ahead? Well, <laughs> uh, I hope so, but, uh, you know, it's certainly not fast. So, 
that's the single biggest thing that governments could do to improve the standard of living for the poorest First Nations is to improve transportation and communication in uh, the northern parts of Canada so that resource development can proceed. But unfortunately, uh, the government of Canada and to some extent other provincial governments are are doing exactly the opposite. That's that's so true. Uh, the, 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 the opposition to so some of these uh, natural resource developments, often in the name of First Nations groups, even though those First Nations groups themselves are for the pipelines, um, is, is really remarkable. And thank you for the clarification about the uh, Transparency Act there. I was I was mistaken. I thought Trudeau scrapped it, but I'm, I'm glad to hear uh, that I was wrong on that and that it's still on the books and that there are s- still you know, 80% compliance rates. That's, that's, that's pretty good. Well, I, I do have a final question. Recently, Jean Chrétien uh, did an interview where, interestingly, he, he almost seemed to defend his 1969 white paper proposal. And I know it was really controversial at the time, and they ended up walking away from it. But, but he, he said that there was still, so I, I don't know his exact quote, Tom, but he, he said something along the lines how that there's still some merit to the idea of, of basically just, you know, ripping up the treaties and moving away from this whole reserve ban system that we have in Canada. And I, I was wondering if you could, if you could comment on that and, and, and um, you know, do, do, do you agree with the 69 white paper? Do you think there's merit there? Do you think that it could still be something that could be proposed today? Uh, do I think it would fly today? No, uh, it didn't fly in 1969 and it certainly wouldn't fly today. Is it a good idea? Well, in an abstract sense, maybe, but uh, it, it's, it's not politically viable. Um, and I think that's been you know, demonstrated. I have a lot of conservative friends who still are thinking in these terms and they talk about abolishing the Indian Act and uh, repealing all the treaties and everybody's going to be equal. And, and so, you know, but that's, that's not the world that we live in. Uh, for, for better or worse, uh, I don't know which it is, but it's a fact that our First Nations have come to be considered as kind of separate entities within Canada. Uh, Talking about them as nations is a, is a you know kind of an exaggeration, but they are definitely separate entities, and uh, they're going to have to find their way to prosper uh, given that. So uh, that's why I've been devoting myself for the last ten years to trying to figure out how uh, First Nations can prosper, and I I, I don't spend any time. Um, on utopian dreams about repealing the Indian Act and. unwinding the treaties and all of that you know history is what it is and we are where we are and uh, we have to try and make the best of it is is my view so um uh as i yeah as i say many of my friends still pursue what i think is this utopian libertarian vision uh of everybody being the same and, and equal rights for all and none of these legislative differences and so forth but uh you know that maybe there was a moment in 1969 when that could have worked but it, you know it didn't politically there was just too much opposition to it and it has to be enacted by politicians and they have to take account of uh you know political realities so uh you know so we are where we are and we uh we have to make the best of it um and i think there are things uh, that will help First Nations to find their way, um, and uh, partly it's there are some positive things that government can do, but a lot of it is government getting out of the way 
you know, not with extreme measures like, you know, repealing the Indian Act, but the Indian Act has been amended repeatedly. You know, it's not the same thing as it was in 1876. Um, you know, people say, well, the legislation's been on the books since 1876. It's it's obsolete. Well, you know, it's not the same legislation. It's like the criminal code. It's been re amended over and over and over. And there's been supplementary legislation that's created new vehicles for First Nations to use for prosperity. Uh, the, uh, you know, self-government agreements, um, the um, for, uh, Land Management Act. Uh, there's a long list of things that are now possible. So that's what I think, uh, you know, is, is incremental improvements in legislation have taken place, more are possible, uh, but, but that's the way to go, not dreaming of, uh, you know, some kind of big bang uh, in, in which we get rid of all the debris of the past and start over, you know, um, that kind of thinking doesn't, that doesn't get you anywhere in my opinion. So uh, I see a lot of signs for optimism in the, the progress that First Nations have made for themselves. Uh, pessimistic about a lot of current political trends, which I think are doing a lot more harm than good. If I can just mention one, uh, I, hope, I hope you're covering the recent announcement about the $40 billion settlement of child welfare. Uh, you know, this is an unprecedented amount of money. And uh, the, everybody knew this was coming, uh, that there would be a settlement uh, as a result of the uh, victory in court uh, of, of the one side. But the amount has suddenly been ratcheted up from somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, maybe four or five or six billion dollars compensation, which is a lot already, up to 20 billion dollars cash payouts uh, with no explanation of why. The only explanation I can see is that Murray Sinclair was invited to the table. And suddenly uh, you, you get uh, multiplication by a factor of three or four of the cost of this thing. So anyway, there are lots of causes for pessimism as well, but I guess that's kind of typical of human life. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom, I, I really appreciate a very nuanced, uh, thoughtful discussion that we've had today. I really enjoyed it. And I just want to thank you for coming on and also for contributing to True North. I heard from a lot of people saying that it was great to see you writing on our, on our site. And I hope you'll continue to do that in the future as well. Well, I'm part, you know, part of a group of, uh, of people, a loosely, a loose network of people that are digging into these issues. So we are planning to produce more fact-based uh, columns like that, uh, which try and set the record straight. So, you know, maybe not, not immediately, but maybe, you know, in the future, we will have more for you. Excellent. Well, we look forward to that. Uh, Tom Flanagan, thank you so much for joining the show. Okay, Candace, my pleasure. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.